0: listening to the UAE's number one talk radio station.
1: This is The Agenda with Georgia Tolley.
0: On Dubai Eye 103.8.
1: Hello there and thank you for downloading The Agenda's podcast from the 20th of October. And on the programme today we covered a serious story as a new study shows an 87% increase in reported child sex abuse material. We spoke to the author and we also looked into the risks to children here in the UAE and how we can protect them from being groomed with child safety expert Mariam Asani. Meanwhile, scientists in Canada say they've worked out how to use voice recordings to screen for type 2 diabetes. We spoke to the authors behind that report. And another study shows that the UAE is now ranked 7 in the world when it comes to electric mobility readiness. And that means that more of us than ever before are ready to buy an electric car. But what does readiness mean? We found out with the author of that report, Philip Seidel, who's a principal at Arthur D. Little. Meanwhile, scientists in the Netherlands reckon e-mobility could soon be old hat as they're developing a solar SUV that they've just driven across the desert. We'll find out why we're not already using the sun's rays to get around. And our resident tech expert, Sonal Rapani joined us to get a review of this week's top JITEC stories. And she also threw ahead to look at a fascinating interview that she's got from a guy from Microsoft X. And we also threw ahead to what to look forward to from this week's Reboot programme on Sunday. Welcome back to the Agenda 1205 here and we are going to cover a very serious topic on the show. Now, I'm doing a sort of fair warning because I know it's half term and there could be children in the car, but it is an important study and oddly enough, it is an important conversation that we have with our children. It is on the basis that a new study has come out showing an alarming escalation in child sexual abuse online, and that is going to be our topic until about half past twelve. If you are, uh, you know, if you if you're sort of slightly screening the radio from from the kids, it all comes out of the We Protect Global Alliance. It's a study that shows an eighty seven percent increase in reported child sexual abuse material. Researchers also found that conversations with children on social gaming platforms, which I mean, so many of our kids use, can apparently escalate into high risk grooming situations within 19 seconds. The study saw that teenage boys are most at risk of something called sexual extortion. Now, that is where the criminals are grooming children to send inappropriate photographs to them that they then use to basically blackmail them. Um, it's a sort of new twist on this on this sort of grooming uh, trend and uh, it's particularly shocking. Now, uh, in order to find out more about this, I caught up with Ian Drennan. He's the executive director of the We Protect Global Alliance. He's the author of this study. And I started by asking him about, you know, just how worried he is by his findings.
2: Yes, it is a really worrying report. We're seeing child sexual abuse and exploitation escalating worldwide and we're seeing diversification in the methods being used. But I think there is hope in the report we're looking at different ways that we can respond and a key way of we need to do that is by incorporating children's voices and a child-centered approach into the way that we respond to this crime.
1: I mentioned some of the uh, sort of key findings there in my introduction. Were there any other that you any others that you'd like to draw attention to? One of the most
2: interesting for me was that there's a gap between what children and young people think are the highest risks, and what the data actually shows. So we did a survey with the UN Special Representative on Violence Against Children, looking, uh, listening to children around the world, and they felt that adults and peers that they don't know are likely to be the, the, the highest risk, but act. Actually, the data shows that in 60% of all cases of online abuse, the perpetrator is likely to be known to the child. So within that circle of trust. So the sort of the stranger danger idea that, that, you know, I was certainly taught um, when I was a child is actually a bit of a myth.
1: That is interesting. Uh, and and I suppose that for me, what I find most frightening is this idea that it could be happening under my own roof without me knowing about it through online uh, abuse or online grooming.
2: Absolutely. I mean, this is a truly global problem. So it cuts across different sectors. It cuts across different geographies. So you could, you could have a child who's in the UAE. They could be engaging with, with an offender in the UK, and they could be using a platform that's headquartered in the United States. Um, so that's why we really need effective collaboration and effective legislation that um, that is able to address that. And I think it's just something that, you know, it's all of our responsibilities, companies, governments, families, everyone to address this and, and and look at what we can do together
1: i've always thought that the danger to, for children online was that people would try to groom them and then meet them in person but it seems to me that that has transitioned to um, to people grooming them in order to get money out of them which, which is which is particularly sort of dark and, and, and alarming
2: I mean I think the this phenomenon of financial extortion and coercion of children has exploded recently so the, the FBI have described it as a as an explosion an increase of 7200% which is mind blowing and the consequences are severe tragically people have taken their own lives because of this i think you know it's something that law enforcement is now engaging with and and getting to grips with but i th- i think you know the key messages there are. You know, seek help, reach out, speak to an adult. Don't start engaging with the with the blackmail and and giving payments and and engaging with it because the data shows that it it, it just escalates from there. So I think the the very strong message is get help. Help is out there.
1: I mean, ultimately that that all stems from a fear that inappropriate images that you might have shared with someone who you thought was a, was a sort of trusted potential partner uh, are then being exposed to the wider world. And of course, that can be done very easily via social media and various different websites. But I'm also interested by this use of artificial intelligence that seems to be mm. rife now, where even if you don't share an explicit photograph, that photograph can be mocked up uh, and that can seem as threatening to a child a, a, as as a real one.
2: It's really a new frontier here. We're we're seeing you know these deep fakes where child sexual abuse material is being you know fabricated, and I think that that raises all kinds of challenges for our for our response to child sexual a- abuse. First of all, it really confuses and, and complicates the law enforcement response if you're trying to assess. Whether an image is genuine or not, and there's different legal frameworks, our strong position is that this is wrong regardless. But also, we're seeing offenders using artificial intelligence to facilitate the process of grooming, to facilitate the process of evading detection. But I should say also, and the UAE government has actually been a real leader in this, AI does offer a lot of opportunities in our response. Um, So, for example, in moderation of uh, social media sites, AI tools offer potential to really minimize the exposure of of human moderators to this very challenging material, and so really helping to facilitate the the response. So it's a two-edged sword.
1: I was going to say, how is it in this technological age where, I mean, we were speaking to um, a representative from Dubai Police only earlier this week, and he was explaining how they have artificial intelligence that can process, you know, every single face in a crowd of people, you know, as as you're coming and going from from an exhibition hall. How is it that we haven't figured out or that the techie people haven't figured out a way just to rid the internet of all these images isn't it possible to to scroll you know to to trawl through and and, and delete them or, or am i being incredibly simplistic with that with that vision <laughs>
2: No, no, no. I mean, the, the the technology is out there. There are there are some really exciting tools, and you know, to highlight, you know, give an example, you know, the IWF in the UK Internet Watch Foundation have some amazing tools, which which actually go out and crawl the the web and look for the proactively look for this material. Um, Canadian Center for Child Protection of something called Arachnid, which has a similar effect. So it so it is out there it's just the scale of the problem is is very significant and where you look you tend to you tend to find but also i think it's really important that we try and prevent these harms from happening so that's why there's a really strong emphasis in the report on prevention and safety by design in particular which is just the concept that when you're designing a product you build child safety in right from the right from the beginning because it's just so much more effective than trying to address the problem after it's happened.
1: You get this sense of, of, of having everyone who's sort of trying to moderate these platforms playing catch up to a certain extent. I mean, uh, just looking at this number here, which, which I found astonishing, you know, according to the Internet Watch Foundation, which you just mentioned in the United Kingdom, there's been a 360% increase in self-generated sexual imagery of seven to 10-year-olds in the last two years or so. I mean you know, you're in a situation where the children are creating this content themselves now uh, for various sort of different reasons. And, and so you can tell, you know, you can see there what, what a problem we're up against. You mentioned earlier that the UAE uh, is, t- is taking great strides. And I know that the, the internet here in the country is slightly restricted. There are certain websites that you can't go to. And I always hope that um, that, that means that our children are slightly more protected here in the UAE. Is, is that the case?
2: I mean, it's definitely true to say that the, the UAE have been a leading voice in engaging with this with this issue. So I've worked with um, Lieutenant Colonel Dana for many years now, and, and her team are doing some really exciting work across the UAE in this area. Just to re-emphasize, this is a global problem. So I think it's any child anywhere yeah. could be a victim of this. And I think we're dealing with offenders who are very skilled at evading and getting around um, restrictions, and also they want to go to the the sites where children are. So this idea that they're all sitting in the dark web or heavily encrypted areas, that may be where they're sharing material, but they need to go out into, for example, social gaming sites to actually meet children, engage with them, and then what's called off-platforming them into, into more Um, secure environments for them. But as you noted at the beginning of the show, that process can be incredibly quick. So it can be as quick as 19 seconds, but then the average is only 45 minutes. And, you know, I've got a seven-year-old and a nine-year-old, so squarely within that cohort that, that IWF highlighted as with that growth. So it's something that's, that's definitely a real challenge in terms of the speed and in terms of the ability to access
1: Really interesting and very sad indeed to hear about the findings uh, of that report by the We Protect Global Alliance, the voice there of Ian Drennan, their executive director. Now, coming up in the next few minutes, we are going to find out a bit more about how you can protect your children here in the UAE uh, from these types of predators. I would like to just say that if anyone is affected by this story, you can uh, either report child abuse or, or get help um, via the Ministry of Interior they have a hotline number 116 or you can also get in touch with the Ministry of Interior's Child Protection Centre's website there's also an app called Hemayati which is Arabic for Protect Me all several different ways there that you can get help through the Ministry of Interior
0: You're listening to the UAE's number one talk radio station.
1: This is The Agenda with Georgia Tolley.
0: On Dubai Eye 103.8.
1: Welcome back to The Agenda. And we are taking a look on the show today at a very worrying study that's come out of the We Protect Alliance. Uh, Now, it shows an 87% in reported child sex abuse material around the world. And I do know that it is half term at the moment. So if you are in the car with the kids, we're going to be talking about this until about 12.30. Um, The research uh, says that in the, com- the the conversations that take place between adults and children on social gaming platforms, can they say escalate into high risk grooming situations within 19 seconds? Now, I know it's incredibly worrying for any parent to hear about these types of statistics, and it is very much a, a global report which covers the UAE. But we are keen to to look into what the reality is here uh, and what we can do to actually protect our children. And to that end, a little earlier, I spoke. To to Mariam Asani. Now, she's the co-founder of Child Safe Middle East. She's been working in this region for nearly a decade. And in the past, she's worked as a child protection advisor uh, for Dubai Police. Uh, we asked her first whether or not, uh, for in her view, these figures ring true specifically for the UAE or or is it sort of typical to the rest of the world?
3: Well, I just came back from Scotland and I can tell you that this is a global issue. It's not just happening in one country or in one continent. And, and the, the conference that was taking place in Edinburgh, it was purely focused on how to prevent and how to raise awareness on online sexual abuse because it's one of the things that is on the rise, as we heard from Ian and from many research that has been published recently, on, on the effect and the side effect that is going on and in, in terms of people not talking about this topic because they don't feel comfortable about it. So going back to your question is, it, is it happening here? Yes, of course, it happens everywhere. Even in the uh, Congress in, in in Edinburgh, I had people uh, joining us from the Ministry of Interior, from the Child Protection Department, which was really great to see that because they were talking about this. They were saying that these things happen in the UAE and we are doing something about it. So, yes, it does happen and it does happen everywhere, but how comfortable are we to talk about? That's another uh, problem.
1: Yeah, I have to say, I mean, I even had to... You know, it isn't a comfortable conversation. It isn't an easy thing to talk about on the radio. It isn't an easy thing to talk about within communities. Is there anything that we should be looking out for in particular in this country as as parents, as well, you know, child protection I officers? Would say,
3: Georgia, I would say that it starts within the family. First thing, we need to be comfortable as parents to talk about these things. We talk about everything else. We talk about where we're going on holiday next time, what we're going to going into where. Why won't we talk about the most important, about our safety? It's not just safety out on the road, holding hands, watching where mommy is, where daddy is, but how can we protect them and safeguard them online Because the world is changing. Everything is happening now online. And especially after COVID, we have seen uh, so much happening online that even the parents, they they were fed up by monitoring and and looking into what goes in in their children's laptop or children's iPad. Because there was a lot of things happening at that time. But we have to just look at it as a crisis. Just like COVID. You know, just like COVID. How did we come all together as countries, as law enforcement, as communities, Talking about the issue, we need to look into uh, online sexual abuse as a crisis, as a uh, worldwide crisis, and tackle it together uh, in in preventative uh, programs for parents, for schools, for teachers, for for everybody that comes in contact with children or have an influence on their bringing up uh, as a childhood into adulthood.
1: I have to say, I was astonished at how young you need to start worrying about it. One of the statistics in this report suggested that there's been a 360% increase in self-generated uh, sort of inappropriate content by children aged 7 to 10 in the last two years, from 20 to, 2020 to 2022. Um, I thought we didn't have to worry about this until they were teenagers. But, I mean, seven to ten is so young. It's shocking. I met a kid yesterday in the lift
3: where I live, and he was telling me, uh, do you know how many followers I have? And I said, oh, okay, tell me how many. 500,000 followers. He, he was eight years old, Georgia. This is unbelievable. Like, uh, Do we know who these people are? Do we know who these people are and how they, they, they are in touch with our children? It, it's alarming. I mean, this is something that it's not even talking about the sexual abuse, but talking about their presence, their online presence, who do they talk to and how much information they share with these people out there. As Ian says, stranger danger is not, no longer um, valid. It's something else. It's a bigger problem that we need to talk about. It's about, uh, you know, even if we look at AI now, everybody's saying AI is fantastic. Yes, of course, it's doing great things in the world with technology advancing. But there are already people out there using AI to create uh, sexual content of children using their faces, taking the image of their face and putting it into a naked body and sharing that online. So this is shocking. How do we stop that? It's by talking about it and really be aware of how we can prevent these things from happening. Sometimes it's too late if we leave it to uh, when they are older or when they are teenagers. You just need to use Child-friendly materials is starting early. I mean, as early as possible. There are programs and there are materials out there for parents to use.
1: Can I ask you what sort of phrases you ought to be using? So, for example, I took the children swimming on the beach last Sunday. It's still hot. So we actually didn't go down until sunset. And it was quite quickly quite dark. And Mm -hmm. there was a man who came to build a sandcastle with the children i was in the water i came out of the water and there was a man sitting next to the children i sort of seen him walk over there is never a time when a man should build a sandcastle with two children who are not his own and so i i took the children away fairly promptly without causing any sort of confrontation I, i sort of stood for a moment thinking how am i going to manage this and i sort of encouraged the children to come and finish their picnic and left this gentleman sitting on his own building a sandcastle um but I then had to explain to the children why I did that. And, yeah. and, and it's, it's quite difficult to try to explain to your children what that man wanted in those children. I said, maybe he was just trying to get mummy's attention. Maybe that's why he came over and he was trying to get mummy's attention through getting your attention. But I, I couldn't find the words to explain what that man's interest might have been in my two young boys to my two young boys. <laughs>
3: How old are your boys, sorry, if I can ask? No, no, they're
1: nine and 10, nine and 10 now. Oh, nine and 10,
3: yeah, yeah. So, I mean, there are child-friendly materials where we don't wanna create fear and, and scare children. You know, this is one thing as well, because if, if we know the impact of that as well, like going out into adult life, you know, not being confident and not being able to stand for themselves. That's also something that we don't wanna do. But it's about using the right content and the mm-hmm. right conversation. And sometimes we shouldn't wait until these things happen. So now, for example, there are a lot of uh, stories or books which goes into these things in a very child-friendly material where they are looking at it. It's not harming the child, but it's raising awareness. Mm. It's giving them the details, the information of how can they spot risks. How can they spot that something is wrong? Because in, in their eyes, everything is okay. You know, everything is fine until something goes wrong. And we don't want that. We don't want when a stranger just approaches our children, this is when we start talking about that it's not okay for you to uh, build a sandcastle with a, with someone who you don't know, but rather have these as an ongoing conversation that's around the table. Let's talk about, you know, uh, how, what is what are the risks of being Anna? What are the risks of going to the beach when I'm not around? And then this will create that, it, it will build that information in their head where they will start themselves. Seeing things, we don't want to just be there always for them because at at some point we will not be always around the children. Am I right? Like Absolutely. this is not something we can uh, always protect them and safeguard them, especially online with the, their online presence. We are, we are not always there, so the risk is always there, but we are not always there. So how do we do that? Is by equipping them with the right tools, with the right knowledge to manage and to be able to talk to you, to create that bonding. This is the the, the important thing, having that bond with the child, with your child, where they can come to you and say, this thing happened. And some parents, unfortunately, they they have a big barrier in between them because they just feel uncomfortable due to their own childhood, due to their own experience with their parents. But we need to change that. We need to really look into what can we do for the future generation, rather than being stuck in where we were and how we were brought up.
1: Mariam Essani, there, the founder of Child Safe Middle East. And just a reminder for you if you've been affected by this topic and, and indeed you want to maybe get in touch with uh, somebody who knows more about it, or if indeed you want to report a child safety crime, uh, then you can report child abuse to the Ministry of Interior through the hotline number 116111, uh, or you can go to the Ministry of Interior's Child Protection Centre's website.
0: You're listening to the UAE's number 1 talk radio station.
1: This is The Agenda
0: on Dubai Eye
1: 103.8. Now, researchers in Canada say they've worked out a way to use voice recordings to screen for type 2 Diabetes, such a cool story, really intriguing. Basically, what happens is they put in 10 second clips into a computer system. They're then interpreted by artificial intelligence, which picks up variations in pitch. And intensity. Now, a little earlier, I spoke to two of the scientists behind this Click Lab study uh, JC Kaufman, she's the first author of the study, and Jan Fossat, who is the vice president of Click Labs. Now, Jan started by telling me what led them to research the sound of someone's voice as a possible indicator of diabetes.
4: So, we decided to study the sound because of the ease of recording sound, which would limit the um, the problem of access to tests. Normally, to test for diabetes, you have to go for a blood test. And we knew that there should be a better way to do that. So we had done a lot of work in diabetes already and in voice analysis. So it was a natural meet to do the two together.
1: So how did you actually do your research?
4: So the research consisted of collecting or recruiting subjects who have diabetes or who don't have diabetes and then asking them to record their voice in the phone a few times a day for two weeks. And then we use those voice, which were labeled as voice from somebody with diabetes and voice from somebody without diabetes, to train a computer model, basically a machine learning form of artificial intelligence that can then extract what the difference is between people with diabetes and not.
1: Very cool. So you actually used artificial intelligence. This is one of those clear sort of examples where AI has been used to help, I suppose, cut down research time ultimately.
4: Exactly. The research is really sped up by the, I guess, the speed of the computer now, where we can do enormous amount of analysis much faster than we could do a few years ago.
1: And now we get to the good bit. What did you actually discover?
4: The big one is that we discovered that there is a signal in the voice of people with diabetes that is not present in the voice of people without diabetes, which means we can identify with relatively good accuracy, with 89% accuracy for women, if somebody has diabetes just from hearing their voice.
1: So now that you've gone back to these recordings, can you tell as a human the difference or is it imperceptible to the human ear?
4: It is imperceptible, at least to our ears as researchers, listening to the voice, we don't hear any difference, Uh, but it is here somewhere, Uh, there is a signal.
1: Do you have a theory as to what it is that the machine learning, that the computer is hearing? You know, do you know whether it's cadence, tone? I mean, obviously in radio, we're sort of fascinated by sounds.
4: Yes, and in fact, I'm going to let my colleague here, JC, explain. JC is the lead author of the study. And she can explain that in more detail. Yeah, so we actually found that there was a difference in the voices of females with type 2 diabetes and males with type 2 diabetes. We found that in females, the features were more associated with pitch and how pitch varies throughout a voice recording. And for males, it was actually more associated with the strength of the voice and how that varies throughout a voice recording.
1: That is so interesting. Sorry, if you could see me, you, you would see that I'm very interested by this. That's, I mean, it's absolutely fascinating. I'm sort of leaning forward. Um, it's really interesting that it's different for men than it is for women.
4: That is actually one of the surprising effects. So the the first part is we were hoping that there would be a difference in the voice between diabetes and not, but then we were surprised to find that there was a difference between men and women, that their diabetes manifests differently when you look at it from the perspective of the voice. It does make sense though, even though diabetes is the same disease for everyone, the blood glucose levels are the same, but the manifestation, the symptoms are different between men and women. The muscle weakness versus the neuropathy manifests differently. And this is what affects the voice. If your muscles are a bit weaker, the voice would be a little different. Or if the nerves are damaged somehow, the frequency of the voice will change a bit. So there's a rationale why
1: this is what we're measuring. So what are the implications of these findings?
4: So the first one is that our goal is to be able to identify the millions of people who have type 2 diabetes who don't know it. One of the features of type 2 diabetes is that, first of all, there is so many people who have it. It's a very, very widespread condition. And about half of people who have it don't know they have it. That's fairly unique because it's asymptomatic. When you have diabetes at the beginning, at least for the first few years or decades, you don't feel it. So this will allow us to identify people or let them identify themselves easier, which means they can get to treatment and their disease will improve or potentially be reverted. That's the main implication.
1: And do you think that there could be potentially implications for discovering other illnesses? Do you, you know, do you think you could use this test for other illnesses? And JC, do you think that there would be maybe a, a tonal difference according to which illness it is?
4: I do believe that voice could be used to detect other illnesses. There are other groups that have been researching psychological illnesses such as depression or anxiety, But this may also be applicable to illnesses such as hypertension or higher blood pressure. And we are, in fact, doing multiple other studies in different areas. The general principle is the same. The features might be different, but anything that affects your underlying physiology, knowing that your physiology is what is used to produce voice, has a potential to show up in a voice. So hypertension, like JC was saying. We're also looking at pre-diabetes, which is the earliest form of diabetes. Since diabetes shows in the voice, it's quite likely that pre diabetes will also show up. But there are a number of other areas we're exploring where the voice, being such a rich signal, probably contains some signature of the
1: condition. Completely fascinating stuff and amazing to hear there from Jan Fossett, the vice president of Click Labs. And you also heard from JC Kaufman, who was the first author of that really interesting study. Welcome back to the show. Uh, Good to have you with us here on the agenda. And I have a question for you. Would you buy an electric vehicle for your next car? Like, I'm not saying you go out there straight away and get one tomorrow. But the next time you buy a vehicle... Do you think you would go electric rather than gas, rather than petrol or diesel? Um, We just made the transition in our family. I got an electric car about mm, six months ago. Um, And I have to say, I haven't looked back. We were a bit nervous about range. We had range anxiety at the beginning. Uh, But once we got a charger at home, then that sorted that all out. I have to say that at the moment... I don't think there are enough chargers around the UAE for you to be able to just use public chargers. And I think that might be a bit of a slowdown here. Um, But it turns out that there isn't much of a slowdown uh, because if anything... The UAE is doing better when it comes to electric mobility readiness this year than last. And that is according to a brand new study by Arthur D. Little. They found that the UAE now ranks seventh in the world for uh, its conversion rate. Um, And in fact, UAE residents have a very high conversion rate to electric cars with over eight in ten saying that they'd be willing to buy an EV as their next vehicle. Let's get into the nitty gritty of that report uh, with one of the authors, uh, Philip Seidel. He's a principal at that management consultancy firm, Arthur D. Little. And he joins me now on Microsoft Teams. Philip, thank you for joining us this sunny Friday morning. Tell me, how do you actually measure which countries are leading the mobility landscape? You know, what do you mean by this sort of readiness sentence, Um, readiness word?
5: sure good morning Uh, good morning Um, yeah our study looks at the market readiness for electric vehicles as you as you said and we take that uh, from a from a consumer perspective so we we really look into the different market conditions and factors which are important for consumers uh, when buying vehicles so one, one important aspect, for example, is the affordability of the electric vehicles. So we, uh, for example, compare the prices or the costs of operating for electric vehicles and gas vehicles. Uh, we investigate the incentives or subsidies that, that governments pay for the purchase or the operation, for example, with tax breaks. Um, so we come to a conclusion if the TCO is favorable for electric vehicles or for petrol vehicles. That's one important aspect. The other one that you already mentioned is, of course, the availability of uh, charging infrastructure. So we measure uh, on the one side the availability of private charging infrastructure at people's homes. And we look at how people live in the different markets. If That is um, a good uh, precondition for having an electric vehicle. And the other very important aspect is, of course, the density and the availability of public charging infrastructure. Um, And this is increasingly um, the fast charging infrastructure, which is uh, is important for people. Last but not least, it's about the the uh, attractivity of the vehicles. So uh, manufacturers uh, must have um, appealing vehicles in their portfolio uh, to make people buy those vehicles. They they need to be good in performance performance. and uh, in driving experience and uh, range, for example, as you as you mentioned.
1: And I'm guessing that since the UAE is now seventh in the world and first in the MENA region, we must be doing pretty well on all of those three pointers. I know that I've seen lots of uh, Chinese as well as Chinese electric cars around uh, the UAE mm-hmm. as well as the Teslas um, that I'm more familiar with. Yeah,
5: um, um, the UAE is, is good in... in um Quite a lot of those factors we investigated, so uh, for example, the charging infrastructure is increasing, the public charging infrastructure, and the availability of attractive EVs is of course um, increasing in the UAE. And also the, uh, let's say, the the, the customer readiness, um, that is for example, that UAE people like to have a new technology. Yeah, they are open to to, uh, to new technologies, uh, and really interested in uh, the latest trends, um, including e- electric vehicles.
1: So I have to admit that when it comes to making that transition from your normal petrol engine car to an electric vehicle, there's definitely a sort of. Um There's definitely a sort of mental transition, I think, for the public. I think you have to shift from thinking instead of going to a petrol station, which, you know, in my case, I've been going to for 44 years, you can just charge it from your house. I actually drove up Uh to Ras al-Khaimah this week, uh, which is a good Uh uh, sort of hour and a half away. And I was still worried about whether or not I'd have enough power to get there and back. I did it easily, but the fact that I'm still worrying about it despite having owned an electric car for six months gives you a sense of that sort of shift mm-hmm. in mentality. To what extent do you need the government to introduce policies to nudge people towards adopting electric vehicles? you know how how much of it needs to be top down rather than bottom up?
5: Uh, good, good question. Um, when we look at those countries which are now leading in our index, so the most ready uh, market, so to say. Uh, in those markets, you will find a very active government with, um, especially in the starting phase of electric mobility, a lot of policies and regulations. For example, you had Norway and you have, you have China, for example. And in both countries, governments have been very active in um, granting advantages for electric vehicles uh for example like free parking reduced taxes etc but they also orchestrated really nicely um, the public and private investments for example in the charging infrastructure to give people um, that peace of mind and um, that they can charge their vehicles wherever they go so th- that's one important aspect um, and governments can also play, of course, an important role in, in setting all the, the basic conditions in the market, because I think the most important factor is to to give people the experience of electric cars and to to really let them test it uh, and see that it's actually working. Yeah, And Norway and China are very good examples. So those countries are very far in their transition to electric mobility, and they, they show that it actually works. In the case of Norway, for basically... Uh, a whole country yeah
1: so i've seen in the united states for example tesla really dropping the price of their cars uh, that's partly in competition uh, with the the offerings from from china but, but also because they want to sort of drive this transition there you've got a commercial company nudging customers mm-hmm. is that effective as well
5: oh, of course of course so um the government um is is of course only one one side of the um, or one player in the game, um, and the private actors are very, very important, especially when the markets become more mature, yeah, uh, with the availability of, of more vehicles and more private uh, investments into the charging infrastructure, um, those those private players become become increasingly important. And it, it also depends a bit on the, let's say, political or the, the business culture in the market. So you will have markets which uh, wait more for political action while you will have other markets uh, which rely more heavily on the private sector and and big companies and investors driving the change.
1: Do you know what is necessary to accelerate this move towards electric vehicles? Have you got a a list of suggestions for governments and commercial organisations that they are a tick box effectively to make this uh, move happen faster?
5: Well, it's, it's, it's pretty much the factors that, that we also investigate from, from the consumer perspective. So, people want to have um, affordable cars. So, you need to get um, the, the total cost of ownership or operations right for, for electric vehicles. And that can be done uh, by, by different means. Yeah? Uh, lowering the costs for electric vehicles and the energy or increasing the cost, on the other hand, for the traditional vehicles. So, cost is one aspect to work on. The other one uh, we we talked about is the charging infrastructure, Um, and that um, is is super important, uh, both in the private area, home charging, and in the public area. Um, And, um, yeah, again, the the manufacturers and the dealers, um, they also have to to bring people and consumers in contact with with those vehicles and um, enable them to... Uh, to make the experience, I would say.
1: Absolutely, and the other thing I suppose that needs to happen is that uh, petrol—the cost of petrol and the cost of diesel—maybe needs to go up, so that uh, it's the running costs uh, of an electric car seem all the more uh, palatable. Uh, really fascinating to hear from you there. So, thank you very much indeed for your time, Philip Seedle, there, principal at the management consultancy Arthur D Little, just giving us a few more details about their electric mobility readiness report, that ranks the UAE seventh in. In the world and first in the MENA region.
0: You're listening to the UAE's number one talk radio station.
1: This is The Agenda
0: on Dubai Eye 103.8.
1: Yes, welcome back to the show. We're discussing the brave new world of environmentally friendly cars on the programme today as a new e-mobility index ranks the UAE seventh in the world for readiness to convert to electric vehicles. But while, you know, lots of us are sort of thinking about buying zero emission cars like Huang Gong Minis or maybe a Tesla, um, the reality is, is that running an electric vehicle is virtually impossible in places with limited charging infrastructure. But that could change thanks to a new vehicle called the Stella Terra um, because it's powered by the sun. And the team developing the SUV have just finished testing it in Morocco. They drove it for more than a thousand kilometres between the country's northern coast and the Sahara Desert in the south. So was the test a success. Well, let's find out with Bob van Ginkel. He is the technical manager for the Solar Team Eindhoven. They're the research team behind the Stella Terra. He joins me now on Microsoft Teams. Bob, how would it go? Did you did you break down or did you make it all the way across?
6: Good morning. Um, yeah, so it went well and of course we had some issues. Um, we of course were extensively testing Stella Terra, and of course some parts uh, needed some adjustments. Um, for example, a, a part in the steering system broke down, but uh, luckily with thanks to the local mayor of the town we were in at that moment, uh, we were able to find a workplace to fix the part. But overall has um has presented itself well and um, uh, to be honest, and we saw that Stellaterra was more efficient than expected up front. So we were able to drive some detours uh, and therefore we were able to complete the whole journey on the power of the sun.
1: OK, so tell me what the vehicle looks like. I've described it as an SUV, so I presume it's fairly large. Is it completely covered with solar panels?
6: Yes, so the, the roof and the bonnet um, are, are covered with solar panels. And you can see uh, the front of the car more as an SUV type, where the back of the car is more a round uh, aerodynamic shape. So it's a bit of a combination of a really rough SUV, but also in the back, a more efficient and lightweight uh, car.
1: I'm really intrigued as to why solar cars haven't already taken off, because... I mean we've got solar panels on the roofs of our buildings you know I, I in my compound for example they use it to heat the swimming pool which is very nice of them you know during the winter and cool it during the summer so why haven't we already oh, why aren't we already driving around Jetson style in, in solar panels fueled cars
6: yeah that's a good question um I think that um we as Solity Mindover always aim to be five to ten years ahead of the market to really inspire and pushing the boundaries of technology um, by doing so encourages uh, companies and individuals to accelerate the transition to a sustainable future but making a car one-off or really mass production that is uh, really that's very hard uh, one need to further develop it uh, and need to weigh more resources and knowledge to do it um, for example to produce every part, you need multiple factories to produce it. And that's why for us as a student team, a group of 22 students, that is simply not possible. Um, however, it's now really up to the market, to all the car manufacturers and the other established automotive companies to yeah, with, with, the, with that power change it to a more sustainable industry. And um, maybe only to use part of the innovations of Stellaterra, but really use their power in order to accelerate the transition.
1: So we've had one of our listeners, Tim, got in touch. And he says that, in his view, uh, he actually drove a solar panel car in Dubai back in 2012, he says. Um it's not new technology, but it's very inefficient. It makes repairing the car difficult, costs a fortune to add, scratches easily, gets covered in dust and the panels don't face the sun directly. So the power generated is hopeless. Um, but that was back in 2012. Has the technology come on a bit? Because that does sound quite sort of depressing.
7: <laughs> yeah, yeah,
6: yeah. Luckily, yeah, we're now uh, 11 years later and the technology has uh, luckily improved. So indeed... Um, of course, um, back in the day, the technology of solar panels and the coatings are, were, were different. Now, the technology has, has come uh, a lot uh, further, and we can see that um, the problems described uh, by Tim are, are not there anymore. Uh, it's now mainly a, a, a problem of scaling up. Uh, what we saw with Stellaterra is that Stellaterra is able to collect all the energy she needs um, for driving um, and also off road driving, where you are consuming a lot more energy. So luckily, uh, the problems are not there anymore.
1: So what type of, you know, which elements of the tech have come on? Is it, is it the battery technology or is it the panels themselves? Are they now sort of more efficient and lighter?
6: Yeah, to be honest, it's the whole combination. It is indeed the panels that are getting better. It's the battery technology that improves. It's the batteries itself that are improving, but it's also the system that is um, operating everything. Um, It's also the way we can build a car more lightweight and more aerodynamic and the knowledge we have about that. So it's really the combination of everything that is uh, getting a little bit improved. uh, And that adds up. And the total sum is uh, Stella Terra.
1: Really interesting stuff. And as you can imagine, uh, it, it's something that, that over here in the UAE would be very attractive indeed. I can't think of the amount of times that with all sort of sat in traffic jams in the, beak, in the baking heat, uh, if you could actually create... Energy at those moments, it would feel very efficient indeed. Bob Van Ginkel, a technical manager for Solar Team Eindhoven, who are the research team behind the Stella Terra solar powered car. Thank you very much indeed for your time. Thanks for joining us here on The Agenda. This is The Agenda with Georgia Tolly
0: on Dubai I 103.8, the UAE's number one talk radio station.
1: Okay, so it does feel like the last week has been a sort of tech special every single day on the agenda. Uh, But I am joined in the studio now by Sonal Rupani, who, strictly speaking, is our resident tech expert as presenter of The Reboot, which is our special tech show that we do every other sunday now isn't it well
8: we are relaunching we had took a little hiatus over the summer so it is going to be every other sunday at 10am we're getting up a little bit earlier for that and uh, moving it to a sunday
1: and i you started with a bang because you were actually live from expand northstar on sunday which of course is the new spin off basically from gitex although it's not new is it it's just in a new home new location i think it's
8: been running for a few years i don't know exactly how many years but they did move it out to the harbor front which is a good thing because we all know how busy gitex has been Oh yeah. and let me tell you expand north Star was busy in its own right so i cannot even imagine both of those things happening in the same place it is I, a good thing I that saw they it moved last them across year. town from each other
1: it was it was it was an event yes it was an event uh, so yeah i mean expand north star give us the gist of what what you know, that focuses on it was really just meeting a lot of
8: st- uh, just also seeing how big the startup community is i have to say there were a couple things that impressed me how massive it was in terms of both startups attending but also funders attending because mm. a big aspect of it of course is bringing the vcs bringing the angel investors, um, bringing sort of competition and prize money to those startups and, you know, doing a bit of matchmaking, essentially. Um, so that's one aspect of it. And the other thing that really struck me is how many global
1: guests were there? That is very encouraging. Because yeah. the, I mean, that is the big pitch of Jitex, isn't they? They say they're the biggest global tech event. Obviously, there's one in Las Vegas that would like to have that title as well. But if they do manage to bring everyone in, then, then maybe they could beat them. You know, my
8: first guest was a very fascinating venture capital guy from San Francisco. He'd just flown in the night before. I spoke to a guy who used to be a dragon on the Dragon's Den. Do you like those pitch
1: shows? Uh, so I used to absolutely love them uh, a few years ago. Uh, yeah, uh, it all started. Did they start in the United Kingdom or did they start in the States?
8: I'm not sure. There's, I feel like there's two versions. There's
1: Shark, Ta- Shark Tank and there's Dragon's Den. And I'm not sure which one came first. But the general gist is you have a product, you want, an investment, you want investment money, and you go in front of four very well-off, very successful guys and go, my product's great, give me exactly. money. Exactly.
8: And, and you know, it was interesting speaking to Tej Lalavani. He doesn't do it anymore. He did it for about four years. But also hearing how much, you know, people see what's on the show, they see the initial pitch, they don't necessarily see sort of what comes after and the, the actual funding that goes into it, the helping the startup um, entrepreneurs build their business and all of that. So it was really interesting. Another person that we spoke to, and the reason I'm bringing this one to you is because there was the Supernova Challenge over the weekend. It featured 40 startups selected to basically pitch... What they've got and the prize money up for Grab was for the, the main prize was 200000 US dollars. Now, it turns out our guests didn't manage to nab that top prize, but they did win the top Mina startup. So that's definitely an accolade in its own right. And it's Jalebi is the name of the company. They're, they're calling themselves the world's first restaurant operating system to help restaurants save 5% on the cost of each and every order served. I spoke to founder Zahir Haider and he explained to me how it works.
7: Very simply put, we built a software approach to helping restaurants reduce their food cost and subsequently their food waste. The reason that this happens is because they capture a lot of raw material that comes into their supply chain, but they don't know how it gets consumed as they're producing food and selling it to their customers. So what we've basically done is we've reversed engineered the way that restaurant technology works for restaurants by going back in time 35 years and saying, okay, if we were gonna build technology, for the first time for an FNB business, with the sole intention of helping them be profitable, what would we do differently than what's been done now? And that was basically just route ourselves from the inventory and work our way through the operation that way.
1: Interesting there to hear that, that food waste is still a major focus for these entrepreneurial sort of startups. Yeah, he was making the point
8: that so many restaurants, first of all, and I didn't realize that, I thought their inventory systems were pretty good. He said so many restaurants don't actually know what they've got. There's a lot of mom and pop shops. People have inherited these mom and pop type of restaurants. They don't necessarily have systems in place to capture all the data of what they've got in the back rooms. And as a result, a lot of it's going to expire. It's going to go bad. They're going to have to throw it out. If you just have better eyes on what you have and the right kind of tech to work with that,
1: I think it's a great idea. Yeah, you can do more specials. You know, if you know you've got loads of Brussels sprouts in the back, bring on the Brussels sprouts risotto. Yeah. (laughs) Or something like that. You can tell I don't work in a kitchen. (laughs) Um, I understand you've also been looking at how uh, artificial intelligence is going to impact on meetings. Uh, Something called interview bots. What's the deal Well, this is
8: something that actually Zina and I are doing later today. So I'm going to give you the full review on Sunday. But... There have been headlines lately, and I actually caught a story in the Wall Street Journal about this that piqued my interest, about how now we have bots making their way into our meetings, our Teams meetings, our Zoom meetings. Um, This is something I'm gonna give it. a a little go and see if I can figure out how to make this work so that I can give it my first-hand review. But it talks about a guy called Josh Stirr. So he's making a presentation about a software feature, and because he's explaining to everyone how this kind of software works, he's just talking to them. It's not a back and forth, this meeting is not meant to be a back and forth after about 30 minutes the bot just prompts him and just goes monologue like,
1: wow you... <laughs> he <laughs> like basically he...
8: got got put in his place he by did. a bot he got called out by a bot that basically said you know why are you just talking and not letting anyone else speak
1: that's re- I, that's so interesting. So I can I guess it kind of remind you of the agenda, but 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 the telling off is unique. The telling off
8: is definitely unique. I think there's a lot of people saying that you know you can maybe pay less attention to your meetings because now you'll have a bot that will summarize the notes for you. If you're late, this bot supposedly can catch you up on what you've missed. And I just think it's really in- interesting to think about how bots are going to start changing the way because we all know meetings they happen way too often in the workplace. They're not always that helpful in terms of productivity. So it's going to be interesting to watch what happens with that. Later today, I'm going to get interviewed. I'm going to get a job interview done, conducted by a bot. Oh my goodness. Are you really? I'm already skeptical about this. Um, so I'm coming in this with with a healthy dose of skepticism, um,
1: but
0: yeah, I think you know, that's going to be
1: interesting. I think it, do you know it'll take the emotion out of things. You know, so often you might in a meeting or in an interview want to sort of call somebody out, mm. but you can't do that as a person because it would be rude. But you can get your bot to do it, can't you? <laughs> your artificial intelligence bot, you can go. Oh my goodness, they're so no, that's outrageous! But actually, it makes somebody shut up, so you can move the meeting on. Do you know, I find that my car is very rude to me. Um, (laughs) So it's polite and rude. So it it opens the door for me as I approach it. Very nice. Which I find very nice indeed. Very polite. But if I, at any stage, do anything even remotely naughty, it beeps at me. So if I get too close to the car in front of me, if I go too close to a lane, if I go too fast, like if I forget to put my seatbelt on, my goodness, it goes ape when I do that. But like ultimately, it's like having a sort of, it's like having my dad in the car with me all the time. Do you begrudge it or do you like it? Uh, so I forgive it a lot because of the opening of the door thing, which is quite interesting. <laughs> it goes how goes to show how far chivalry yeah. goes with me. Um, what do I think? Well, because it does keep me safe and a couple of times it has got me out of trouble, uh, I, don't, uh, I, I forgive it. But it, it does annoy me. I nearly <laughs> said something naughty then. It does annoy me. So I think maybe... I mean, I, it is going to be interesting. Our attitude, the attitudes that we'll approach to these sort of AI characters, these whether and and I think we will transpose characters onto
8: them, won't we? Well, that's already started happening. Did you see that? There's a lot of celebrities that have been giving their likeness to bots. I think this one was with Meta, where they, you've got like a Kendall Jenner and you've got a Tom Tom Brady now they've given them different names but they've taken the likeness of these celebrities so that now your bots are going to feel like real people and real characters and there's going to be a variety of different characters that are talking to you and interfacing with
1: you wow you can choose you can choose whether you want somebody you know bossy or friendly according to your mentality Which, which celebrity are you taking for this oh my goodness that's such a good question I I do respond better when I hate to say this I do respond better like with a personal trainer Uh I do respond better if a man tells me to do something (laughs) this is The Agenda
0: on Dubai Eye 103.8 the UAE's number one talk radio station
1: talking tech on the agenda today. I have to say it has been something of a recurring theme over the last week, not least because of course the JITEX conference has been going on. So we wanted to sort of end the week with something of a bang. And so I have invited our resident tech expert at Eye 103.8 into the studio. It is of course uh, Sonal Rupani who has her own special tech show every other week. It's got a new time now, hasn't it? The it reboot. Is.
8: It's the reboot. We're coming back this Sunday at 10am. Very excited for our first show. So many different topics that we're Going to be discussing, and one of those is an interview with a really fascinating personality. His name is Mo He was the chief business officer of Google X, which is their sort of innovation moonshot division. Um, so he's worked on a lot of sort of future-facing cool technology. Catchy, get him. He's Zena. great. Zena does all the work. You know how Zena works. The Zena works. I mean, he is an impressive man. Yeah,
1: very cool.
8: He's the author of "Scary Smart: The Future of Artificial Intelligence and How You Can Save Our World." And he actually made some headlines. He was on a podcast. Called Diary of a CEO that a lot of people know and love this summer. And he suggested it might be a good idea to hold off on having kids until we have more certainty about sort of the direction of the world that we live in. Did he really? Yeah, yeah, he did. And, um, you know, when you listen to the context of that, he's not sort of doom mongering. He's just sort of saying, listen, it's a really uncertain time for many reasons. One of those reasons is AI. And when it comes to this, it's not so much him saying we know what will happen. It's the fact that we don't know what will happen.
7: Uh, An era of history, as we know it, is just about to end. So since the day humanity began, we have been the smartest being on the planet. Uh, I would probably say that we're less than two to three years away from that episode ending. And when it does end, uh, you are in a place where uh, in computer science, we call it singularity. So it's a point beyond which the rules of the game itself changes so much uh, that it becomes extremely difficult to uh, to understand how the game will play. What what does the world look like when we are not the smartest being on the planet?
8: George, let me ask you, when we're not the smartest being on the planet, what do you imagine the world looks, the world looks like? Because a lot of people are going to po- point to sci-fi dystopia films. That's kind of the first thing that comes to mind, right?
1: Yeah, I think I think we I think humans naturally are very scared of change, but actually mm. we're very adaptive. And I think what's going to happen is it's just going to make life easier. Like the printing press. I'm I'm a glass half full person rather mm-hmm. than a glass half empty, so I'm like everyone said the radio is going to be ruined by X. And everyone said that, you know, the world was going to implode because of rock and roll. Yeah. But look where we are.
8: <laughs> we're doing all right. Um, it's one of those things that it's all about the unknowns, really. He says it's one of those things that's hard to control. There are a lot of areas that we need to be careful of. But because we're in a bit of a prisoner's dilemma.
1: What's a prisoner's dilemma?
8: So the fact that as a collective we might have one sort of solution or outcome that's optimal for us but as individuals there's actually different motivations and different factors that actually drive us towards a direction that may not be good for the collective and so that's a bit of the dilemma we find ourselves in now
7: if 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 one uh, um, a financial institution figures out a way to beat the stock market consistently. It's not going to share that knowledge to the de- to democratize the trading. Hmm? It's going to acquire more and more and more wealth uh, by definition, not because not only because the AI is developed this way. It's because of the greed of the person who's driving the AI. Hmm? If someone develops a super weapon hmm, uh, using intelligence. They're sadly going to use it or at least prevent others from using it because of human greed. And, and so the challenge we have, interestingly, and I keep saying this, those who talk to you about the existential risk of science fiction are distracting you from the real problems. The real problems are jobs to be lost when AI can do the, jo- the job instead of you, uh, a very serious impact on the social fabric of society in terms of love and romance and relationships, a very, very serious uh, uh, blurriness that covers the truth with all of the fake videos and the fake images and the, you know, and the, and, and the scripts written by AI and so on and so forth. There is a, and, and of course, the impact of that on freedom and democracy and our views of the world and our relationships to each other. There is a very serious impact of concentration of power and wealth.
8: That's the part I'm most interested in, the concentration of power and wealth, because there are so many people who are warning about AI who are the very same people that have been driving it forward. So take it, Mo himself has built AI systems. Right now he's warning about it. You have the godfather of AI, Jeffrey Hinton. He's been making headlines for warning against the possibilities. Open AI's chief, Sam Altman, has, has warned about risk, as is Elon Musk. A lot of people signing a massive open letter to say, listen, we need to put the brakes on this. We need to make sure we're doing this responsibly. And yet those same people making the warnings are the people driving it forward. And so that was my favorite part of the discussion, actually, because I thought that there's just so much sort of hypocrisy in that. Um, so we'll get that full conversation with Mo on Sunday. We're going to have the reboot on from 10 a.m., but we'll come to that interview with Mo just after 11, if you're interested to tune into that.
1: Fantastic. And if for some ridiculous reason you are away this weekend, you can always download the Reboots podcast. You just find it on demyai 103. So, no, thank you very much indeed. Have fun this weekend. Enjoy off script as well, on from five o'clock with the boys. Yep, exactly. Have a good weekend to you too. Thank you very much indeed. The agenda is live Monday to Friday from 10 a.m. till 1 p.m.